Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Yes, we finished chapter 18. We're moving on to Matthew chapter 19. How many things can you think of that lasts a lifetime? And let's define a lifetime as the, your average age expectancy here in the United States, about 78 years old. So what can last up to 78 years? Ian? Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I feel like, whew, got chills. Yes. Huh? Okay, dirt. Ava. Huh? Thank you. Marriage. Okay. Nuclear radiation, sure, yes. Electronics, last one, Sage, and over here. And what? Thank you. And a tree. Okay, I got a couple of things to share with you guys. Sea turtles, they tend to live between 50 and 100 years old, years of age, well, years. Uh, the oldest whale has been recorded to have lived 211 years. 211 years. This is going to be very uh, interesting. Honey. Honey has been known to last centuries. They found some in a pharaoh's tomb. They heated it up. They tasted it, and it was sweet. I'm not going to volunteer for that, but the person that did, he never got COVID. Okay. <laughs> Other things, Pastor Dusty's going to like this one. Leather items. Leather items last a long time. Photo albums. There's a lot of things that can last for a lifetime. And I'm actually glad that Eva mentioned marriage because the union between a man and a woman and God's plans and intentions is for a lifetime. We're going to, uh, today, we're going to look at a day in Jesus' ministry. We're going to look at three scenes. And the second scene, which is Jesus' teaching, his ministry of teaching, we're going to see a debate between him and the Pharisees concerning divorce. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 1, and we're going to read until 12. The Word of God says, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, 
and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there were also eunuchs who made and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Amen. So we just finished Matthew chapter eighteen. We learned various lessons there. We learned about the great question that the disciples asked Jesus. Am I echoey? Are you guys, is it too echoey? Is it too loud? Is it good? Okay. We learned that uh, they asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? And we know the answer. Uh, we learned that God is against believers causing other believers to sin or stumble. We learned that God wants us to pray for believers to come back to the fold, those that, have, that, those that leave to come back. We learned that God calls believers to confront and pray for those that go astray, church discipline. And we also learned on Sunday about forgiving those that have gone astray and returned back to the fold and just forgiveness in general. Today we'll be going over more of Jesus' ministry and some of the things he encountered on a daily basis. But we're going to zone in specifically on a debate between the Pharisees and Jesus concerning divorce. So we're going to look at three things today of Jesus' ministry. The first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' healing ministry. And that's going to be found in verses 1 through 2. Then we're going to go into Jesus' teaching ministry, and we're going to look at the divorce debate. We're going to look at the question, the answer, the rebuttal, and the conclusion. Last, we're going to look at the final scene of Jesus' ministry where he disciples his disciples, Jesus' discipleship ministry. The theme, main idea that I want you have to, to have in your mind as we read is, as believers, we should revere the gift of marriage because it is God's great as believers, we should revere the gift of marriage because it is God's great design. So let's begin by exploring the first theme and Jesus' healing ministry. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. What words did he just finish? The words in the parable of the unforgiving slave. He had finished teaching there, and he had finished teaching his ministry in Galilee, and now he was ready to move on to the next city. He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So if we recall from chap Matthew chapter 17, verse 24, we know that Jesus came to Capernaum in Galilee and was camped there throughout Matthew chapter 18 in his, in his teaching. Now he was traveling south towards Jerusalem to the area of Judea. Beyond the Jordan River refers to an area called Perea. And this is important that you guys remember Perea because this is where John the Baptist was baptized. And we're going to come back to this geographical location in a second. John 10.40 says, And he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And what happened? What happened when he went to Perea? Well, verse 2, And large crowds followed him. This is not abnormal. We've learned this many times. Jesus' miracles and his message had hundreds of people following. Whether they were there for the message, whether they were there for the healing, they were following Jesus. Matthew records large crowds following him about ten times. A few examples, Matthew 4, verses 23 to 24. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. 
Matthew 12, verse 15. So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. So let's recall what we learned about. Never in the history of the Jewish people have all these miracles of healing been present. They were de- demon deliverances, people growing limbs, blind seeing, all these miracles that they weren't used to. So obviously this would create a commotion. People would travel miles on foot to where Jesus was just to see him, to see if they can get that miracle, to see. And think about it. In, in all honesty, if we had a disease that was uncurable and no one can help us, and we're hearing all this commotion that there's this man that's doing so, you as a parent will do everything in your power to go and see, to see if you can get that miracle. So what did he do when large crowds followed him? He did two things. He taught them, and after he taught, he usually healed and performed miracles. In Mark's account of the parallel passage of what we're here, of, of what we're learning today, we see that Jesus is teaching the crowd. Mark 10:1. Getting up, he went up there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. In Matthew's account, Matthew does not mention that he was teaching, he just mentions that he was healing them. Jesus was a compassionate king, and he taught his people, and he healed his people. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think Jesus healed after he taught? What do we, or what have we learned about miracles in the Bible? Anyone? Faith? Okay. That's, that's, that is true, but what's the purpose of why God allows miracles to happen throughout the Bible? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. They validate that there is somebody sent from God. So all of his lessons and his teachings, were they very well taken? Were they like, oh yeah, Jesus, we knew that. All of Jesus' teachings, the majority of them were what? They were revolutionary. They had never heard of it before. They were blinded by the blind leaders that were leading them. So when he comes with this new revelation, and not new revelation, revelation that's just there, but the Pharisees didn't know how to interpret it. When he comes with it, he's saying, hey, and then the miracles occur. Therefore, attest to Christ, attest to his power, and what he said must be true because of God, God allows him to do so, and God is with him. Now, in these large crowds, you also had Jewish leaders. They were, they were seeing what the big commotion was all about, and we taught that some Pharisees traveled miles and miles to see what Jesus was doing. And unfortunately, you would think that Pharisees who study the word, who know the word, right, that they would look at the prophecies of the Messiah and they would think to themselves, let me go to a test to see if this is the son of David. Let me go and see if this is. But we know that the majority of times they didn't. They didn't. They came to do what? To test him. To see if they could catch him on something. To discredit his message. To discredit his authority. Before we move on to the next theme, I want you to think why you are here tonight. Are you here because Jesus is the Lord of your life and because you want to learn from his word and are eager to follow his commandments? Or are you here today to hear the word, to try to catch God in a mistake that you can excuse your sinful habits or our sinful habits sometimes, just like the Pharisees did? I pray that it's the first. 
that He is your Lord and you're here because you love His Word and you love His commandments and you want to learn more and more each day, not what can I do, how can I get this loophole because I really want to have fun in life and not make Jesus my Lord. So, this leads us to our second theme and Jesus' teaching ministry. In this, in this scene, we're going to encounter a debate between the Pharisees and Jesus. So, some of the Pharisees who were there in the crowd, in verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Who were the Pharisees, guys? They were the religious leaders of the time. They, along the scribes, held religious and political power amongst the Jews. Their job was to make sure that the people were they were enforcing the Mosaic Law on the people and making sure that they were practicing it. When they said, Jesus testing him and asking him, testing him was something common as they were looking to discredit Jesus in some way as they didn't want to accept his message and make him Lord. The Pharisees enjoyed their man-made traditions to be made right with God, but never wanted to actually worship God with a pure heart. Look at Matthew 16, verse 1, when we read, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Matthew 22, verse 16 through 18. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. You are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? A commentator states that the Pharisees despised Jesus because he undermined their false teaching and expose their deceitful living. What did they ask him? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? The Greek for lawful means permissible. Is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Why do you think the Pharisees asked this question? Could it have been that they were in the Sermon of the Mount when Jesus first talked about divorce in Matthew 5, 31-32, when Brandon taught us? It was said, whoever sends his wife away let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And they were just waiting to get him publicly. Remember, in that Sermon of the Mount, he's coming out with his message publicly. The kingdom of heaven. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven for the first time to them. So they were like, you know, feeling him out, listening to it, but they remembered and like, all right, this is a good way to get him because of what society thought of marriage at the time. What was, going what was actually going on at the time when it came to divorce? A commentator writes that there were two main schools of thoughts when it came to divorce. The first school of thought came from a rabbi called Hillel, a prominent Pharisee who gave an easy way out for divorce. You guys are going to laugh, but these were the reasons that they allowed divorce for. Women taking down their hair in public, in public places. Women burning the bread for dinner. Putting too much salt in food. Speaking bad about the mother-in-law. Woman was infertile. These are all reasons that were allowed to, to get, they, they were legit reasons to get a divorce. And they permitted it. The second school of thought was more strict and was less influential. And it came from another rabbi, Shammai. He stated that divorce was never permitted under any circumstances whatsoever. Both of these school of thoughts are not biblical. A commentator writes, the Pharisees wanted to see if they could get Jesus to contradict Moses to then accuse him of being a false teacher. 
there is no honest question. Can you come to Jesus and God and ask an honest question? Yes, yes you can. Was, were the Pharisees doing this? No, no they weren't. If they were, if they really were intrigued by this question, they would have stepped aside. Hey, Jesus, I know you got a kind of busy, let's talk for a little bit one-on-one. I really have this doubt. Can you explain it to me? But that's not what they did. They did it publicly in front of everyone. But there's a more predominant theme that I read about from various commentators in why they asked this question. And we go back to the geographical location that I talked earlier. They, they were trying to see if they can catch him say something contradictory that would entangle him in the Herod Herodias affair. Guys, where did John the Baptist baptize? In Korea, in beyond the Jordan River. Under whose jurisdiction was Korea? Under Herod Antipas. Who remembers who was Herod Antipas? Anybody? He was the king who incarcerated and killed John the Baptist. Does anybody know why he incarcerated John the Baptist? Yes, Mark 6, 17 through 19. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. So basically, the Jews knew that if Christ said something contradictory at that moment at that time, they were hoping it would go to the ears of Herod, and hopefully, like John, Jesus would suffer the same fate, fate which was what? Death. Now, we've discussed why the Pharisees asked the question. Let's take a quick moment to see what God, what does the, what does the Bible and God say about divorce? What does God think about divorce? Everyone turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. And as you're looking for Malachi chapter 2, you might ask yourself, what does divorce have to do with me? I'm in middle school, I'm in high school. Well, it's a good age to start preparing for marriage, to start preparing to value marriage, because it is important to God. And if it's important to God, it should be important to you. And the various ways that you can start valuing marriage right now at your age, we're going to talk about that t- at the end. Malachi 2, verse 16. This is God speaking. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And in him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So we know that God hates divorce. Clearly, it's clear. So under what circumstances is, dimo- is divorce permissible before God? Biblically, there are two reasons that are permissible for divorce. The first one, we've talked about it already, Matthew 5, 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What does this immorality look like? Well, it could be defined as adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, under that category, is divorce permissible. The second circumstance that allows for divorce is, is if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God has called us to peace. 
Now, let me make something clear. Under both circumstances, reconciliation should be sought first and foremost. However, if it cannot, divorce under these two situations is permissible. Now we're going to go to the answer that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Guys, what does God use? What does Jesus use in that moment to, to go against the challenge that they're giving him? What did he use? He used God's word. That's something that we should emulate all the time. When any controversial topic comes to you or comes your way, don't try to convince people with human logic because if they're dead in their trespasses, they're not going to understand. You convince people through the word of God because the word of God is truth. And you take them to the word. He begins his answer with, have you not read to the Pharisees? This is a great response because guess what? They're accusing him or they're trying to get him in public and, and Jesus is responding to them in public. And their attempt to actually discredit Jesus is going to backfire on them because Jesus, by using God's word, is going to eventually discredit them. The fact that Jesus is telling them in front of everyone, have you not read to a Pharisee, to someone who dedicates their life to study the word, says something about their ignorance on what they're asking. He wants everyone to know, Jesus, these blind, how these blind leaders are leading the blind. We have the Pharisees. What have the Pharisees not read? Apparently, because if they're asking Jesus, when is divorce allowable? And Jesus is saying, well, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus is quoting Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 5.2. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. Genesis 5, 2. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. It's funny that Jesus does not reference any cultural context at the time. Or what society might think at that time. Where does Jesus take them? Jesus takes them to the beginning. To the world pre-fall. To the true intention of marriage, of what it was designed for, to be eternal, to be forever. By quoting Genesis, Jesus basically told the Pharisees, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with God. If you're asking this question to me, thinking you're going to discredit me, you're not discrediting me. I'm using the very word that you use. You're about going against God and arguing with him what his design was marriage for. I want to take a brief moment to pause here. I want you to know that God is clear in his creation. He created mankind to be male and female. Man and woman. For God, there is no distinction between gender and sex. If you were born a male, then you are a boy when you are young, and then you're called a man when you become an adult. If you were born female, you're called a girl when you're young, and you're called a woman when you're an adult. There is no confusion. The Bible is clear and direct. If you or you know of anybody that doubts their gender or identity, how, or how God created them to be regarding their gender, just take them to the truth of Scripture. In love, with kindness, it's not complicated, it's black and white. 
I pause here because unfortunately, because of sin and the fall of man, we live in a time when society is trying to redefine common sense science to justify sinful lifestyles. Those that struggle with gentile identity, they shouldn't be rejected, but we should love them with the best possible love. And you know what that love is? Sharing the truth of God's word and preaching the gospel and praying that God has mercy over them. Please pray for their salvation, just as you would for any other believer, if you have anyone that struggles with this. So we pause. So we went over the first answer, and God, what Jesus was, what he's doing is, he's basically referring to the creation to receive the authority of his answer. He went back to creation to where it all began. And in verse 5 he says, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. After Jesus establishes who created man and woman, which was God, in the previous verse, he tells the Pharisees that because God created man and woman, God can make the rules for man and woman. And what are the rules and what is the purpose for man and woman? One major purpose for mankind was to participate in marriage. Marriage should be considered a gift from God. In his intelligent design for man, he created marriage. This is how humankind would procreate, would raise children for them to eventually be fruitful members of society so that they one day can follow in the footsteps of men, etc., etc. We are here today. The Greek word for man and woman here emphasizes adult male and adult females leaving their parents' home and becoming one flesh. And what are they going to do when they leave their parents' home? And be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The Greek here for to be joined means to glue on, to resist separation. The Greek for one flesh derives from Genesis 2.24. A commentator writes, although its meaning includes sexual intercourse, it primarily signifies unitary existence. A complete partnership of man and woman that cannot be broken up without damage to their partner's image. See, this union, guys, has a strong spiritual implication. The union between a husband and a wife. It's so strong that God uses this union of marriage to describe the relationship between one of the most important things for Christ, his church. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 28. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own life, his own wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Jesus also does the church. Because we are members of his body, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church, the, the, the union of Christ and his church. A commentator writes, Thus, Genesis 2.24 speaks not only to the question of human marriage, but beyond that to the relationship between Christ and the bride to whom he has been united. In particular, the apostle points out that anyone who is a member of the body of Christ 
does not become one body with someone other than a spouse. Such an action strikes at the root of the believer's identity. After all, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. In other words, just like Christians have to cling on and be glued to what is good and are united in one spirit with the Lord, so do husbands and wives cling to each other and no one else. If they leave this union and cling cling or are glued to someone else, they are sinning directly against God. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I also want to make another brief pause here. God's view of biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Many have argued that Jesus is okay with same-sex marriage because he never addresses it in the gospel. We know that that's not the case because he's addressing it now. He is saying that marriage is an institution that was created from the beginning of time to be between a male and a female. Again, you might have family members and old people that are homosexual and are married, but the response of the Christian is not to compromise the word of God, but to stand with it in courage and in love. Also, the greatest love to show any sin, regardless of the sin, is the gospel. Preach it without shame, because it's the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Your job is not to convince anybody to think like you. Your job is to preach the gospel and let God do the work in them. Amen? Again, because we live in today's society, and you guys see this all the time, and it's more and more in your face, we need to know where in the Bible to go to, to counteract, and to know the Bible enough to give an answer for your faith and to stand firm in it and to tell people, hey, this is, especially Christians that want to argue against you, you call yourself a Christian, this is the word of God. Take it up with God, not with me. I stand for what the word of God stands for. Lastly, Jesus takes them back to creation. God created them, male and female. He gave them purpose and he gave his ordinance. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Greek for has joined together means to pair two things, kind of yoking, like two animals as they work together and share all the concerns of life equally. What God has joined. Marriage is something that God allows, and the marriage that we have, the marriages of life, they're God-given. What God has given, what God has joined, let no man separate. So then after Jesus answers them, what do the Pharisees do? I can see them. You can see them in your mind. Oh, they're, they're salivating. Oh, oh, but doesn't he know? Doesn't he know Moses? So what was the rebuttal that the Pharisees gave him? They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They thought they got him. Oh, the Pharisees were like, yep, my drop. We got him. Done. He has nothing to tell us. The Greek for command, why, did, when did, why then did Moses command, is 
it means to give instructions or to direct somebody to do something with authority. And the Greek specifically means a legal document. So why, they're saying, why did Moses permit someone with authority to get a legal divorce? The, ref- the Pharisees are referencing Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of a divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Thinking they caught Jesus, they came back with a clever answer. Basically saying, if that's the case, then why did Moses, the greatest figure in the Old Testament, the one who God <laughs> gave God's law, why would he say that? And Jesus' response, again, is clear, precise, beautiful, wise, great. He said to them, and this concludes his debate, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. The Greek for hardness of heart means the inner man resolute on his own ideas and desires. It was man's sinful desires to abandon God's design that allowed for divorce. He is stating that the original design for marriage was to be a lifelong commitment, not something to be taken lightly. A commentator wrote, If Moses permitted, permitted it, he did so because sin can be so vile that the divorce is to be preferred to continued is the divorce is to be preferred than to continued indecency, in indecency. The best assumption is that the indecency was any lewd or moral behavior sometimes, including but not restricted to adultery, homosexuality, and all the other sexual immorality things that we talked about. In verse 9 he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and there is another woman, commits adultery. The Greek for immorality means sexual acts that are morally objectionable, objectionable, especially related to prostitution and adultery. Jesus' desire was to make it clear on how grave of a sin was adultery. John MacArthur writes, the purpose of permitting divorce is to show mercy to the sinning spouse, not not to condemn the innocent one to a lifetime of singleness and loneliness that that would not be required if the Lord had the sinning partner executed. Should his grace to the sinner penalize the innocent? The Lord allows divorce in order that the adulterer might have the opportunity to repent rather than to be put to death. And both here are in Matthew 5.32. Jesus specifically allows remarriage by the innocent spouse in order that he or she might have the opportunity to enjoy again the blessings of marriage that were destroyed by the partner's adultery. The qualification except for immorality clearly permits the innocent party who marries another to do so without committing The last scene that we're going to talk about is in the last ministry of Jesus is his discipleship. Jesus discipling his disciples. And how do we know that this debate is concluded? Well, we know that the, Phar- the Pharisees left. They had nothing to say. What would they say before those great answers? What would they say against, are, are they going to go against God's word? Are they actually going to do that publicly? No. They left quietly. And you would think, man, Jesus, after an all day of healing, of all day of preaching and teaching, now you just want to, he wants to rest. But he takes this time to disciple his disciples. 
Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. So after listening to the debate, the Pharisees, they left, and Jesus' disciples, they continued this conversation. In Mark chapter 9, verse 10, which is the parallel passage, it states, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In verse 10, in the house, the disciples began questioning him on this event. So they were now in a house. And then they asked this question to Jesus. And it was sincere, right? It was sincere. Now it's a more personal conversation with his disciples. And he was inspired for that. And we're going to read how he did it with love and patience and really wanting his disciples to understand what he just taught and what he was debating with the Pharisees. They said to Jesus, we should not even marry because of how hard it might be and divorce is not an option. Really, they, they, they looked at themselves and were like, hold on a second. What you just said, it just blew my mind. I always thought that divorce was an easy way out. That's how it was taught to us. Jesus comes and says, not anymore. And then they're like, well, if this is the case, then it's better not to marry. A commentator wrote, since they lived in a society that was used to getting divorces on demand, when they find out how serious their commitment was to God, they said it would be better not to marry. But it's a good thing that the disciples said that. It means that they understood the message that Jesus was saying, divorce is wrong. Divorce is wrong before the Lord. They felt the heaviness of that sin to say that to Jesus. Lifelong marital commitment because of the existing shallow and unbiblical view of marriage is something common. Does that sound familiar to you today? Where here in America, 50% of marriages end up in divorce for a reason just as dumb as the one I read earlier? But what does Jesus say to them? He says, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. The Greek word for accept means being capable. Not everyone is being capable, can be capable of doing this. Not everyone can be single, and not everyone can be married. Depending on what God has ordained for you, that's what you're going to follow, and he's going to give you the gift, and he's going to give you the way to follow that. The Greek, for it has been given, is to be or become of one's possession, whether physically or abstractly. So basically, no man, not, not all men can accept the statement, but only those to whom has it has been given. So God here is ordaining this on who it can be given to. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born this, that way from their mother's womb. What does this mean? The Greek for eunuch here means a man who is incapable of reproduction. Basically, he was born with physical defects that he wouldn't be able to have children or be in a marriage. That's the first type. The second, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. The Greek for eunuch here means that they were castrated often to become an official court, an official eunuch of the court. A commentator wrote, a eunuch might be a person who was castrated. This was commonly done to slaves or servants who served in a royal court where the women of the household might be in danger of the servant's sexual interest. So the one, the eunuch who was born that way or the eunuch that was forced to be that way, those are forced upon. Okay? They have no choice. They can't get married. Okay? And then when Jesus says, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, these are people who purposely decide to not get married and live a life of celibacy, for the kingdom of God. Okay? Let's make this clear. Jesus is not saying that to live a life of celibacy is better than to get married, vice versa. They both bring glory to God. 
The Bible teaches both blessings of marriage and the blessings of being single. A commentator wrote that Jesus or the Apostle Paul were not saying that celibate, being celibate is better than being married, nor a condition for higher levels of ministry. We see Peter, he was married, and he was an apostle of Jesus. And we see Paul that he wasn't married, and he was also an apostle of Jesus. And they both served the Lord, and they both loved the Lord. Some examples of the blessings of marriage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Verse 7, yet I wish that all men were even as I am myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Verse 9. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 24. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in, the, in that condition in which he was called. Verse 32. But I want you to see, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he pleases the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There, is a, there are blessings for both. Okay? There are blessings for both. What God is saying, and what Jesus at the end of his days, at the end of ministering, at the end of discipling, we see his love and compassion in the healing, in the debating, in his discipling with his disciples. And giving them, it's good that you recognize the heaviness of this. But don't fear. If God has you to be married, he will give you the strength to be married and to remain married. If God has you for singleness, He'll give you the strength for that. And both will bring glory to him because he's God. Now, scene, the next scene is Jesus goes to sleep after a long day of ministry. No. The children come. The children come and the disciples are like, stay away, we're sleeping now. Just stay away. And Jesus says, no, let me bless them. And that's what we're going to talk about on Sunday. How do we apply what we've learned today? Because you might be thinking again, I'm in middle school, I'm in high school, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with me. Let's start with the first thing. Those that came to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, do you come because of who he is? Or do you come because of what he can do for you? It's important that you answer that question and you be honest. And in your small groups, they're going to ask you this. Do you honestly say that Jesus is your Lord, that you do it because you love God? Simple, like, oh, I, I want to go to heaven because I don't want to go to hell, or I want to go to heaven because I want to be with Jesus, and the blessings of being with Jesus is not going to be in hell, but the focus is Christ. Second application, are you using the word of God to defend your stances against the world? Next time you're asked about your stance on controversial topics, use the word. Use the word of God. That is the real, that is, it's the only thing that will convince anybody. Prepare yourself. Why do you think it's important we tell you to read the word and to meditate on it and to know it? This is why. So you know how to defend your faith when that time comes. It should be a gospel opportunity. Don't let it pass. Praise God for marriage. It's a blessing and a joy to be married and to start a family. After Christ... And making him Lord, the best next decision you can make is marriage. I love my wife, Kat. It's the best thing. My marriage is awesome. I love my kids. 
I love being a dad. It's, it's a great thing. Marriage is awesome. Just praise God for that institution if that's what he has for you. Pray for the marriage of your parents. Pray that the good Lord would be the center of their relationship. It's important that you pray for your parents' marriage. Also, pray for your future marriage. Time flies, guys. And there's nothing wrong with starting praying now. First and foremost, that they're believers in Christ. And secondly, that you have the wisdom to listen to your parents sometimes when it comes to those decisions. Love is blind. Sometimes your emotions can blind you to something that your parents can see. Listen and obey your parents because they love you. Start praying for your marriage. Value marriage because God values marriage. What's the best way to value marriage at your age right now? Think about it. What's the best way to value marriage right now? The best way to value marriage right now is to keep yourself pure and saving one of God's most precious creations for when its intended time and purpose, which is marriage. That's how you keep it pure and value marriage. By following his commandments, by fleeing from sexual immorality, by being pure in your mind and physical as well. Praise God for the truth found in Scripture about sexuality and marriage. You don't need to be confused like the world is confused. You can trust the Creator's plan for marriage. Make sure your view of marriage mirrors that of Scripture. That when it comes time to get married, you know that it's a union between one man, one woman, till death do you apart. And for everyone here that's listening and saying, yeah, that sounds great, but... It's not for me. Um, I'm, I'm my own Lord. I'm my own God. I follow what I feel, what I want. And let me tell you something. One day we will, be, we'll, we will die. It's, it's going to happen. And we will be judged for all that we did, thinking that we knew, thinking that we knew more than God. And the verdict is not looking good. We're all guilty before the Lord. There is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the price of sin is death. But there's good news. The gift of life. uh, Jesus Christ is the gift of eternal life. He came and died on the cross for you and me. He lived the perfect life that you and me could never live. He followed all of God's commandments to the T, to the dot, and he did them with love, and he did it with enthusiasm, and he did it because he he loved God with that. He lived the perfect life we need to live. He died on the cross. He resurrected on the third day. And right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible is clear and says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you repent from your sins, he's willing and able to forgive you. Stop being your own Lord and make him your Lord today. Bow the knee. Bow the knee to Christ. Because it's the best thing you can ever do. Being a doulos, being a servant, a bondservant, a slave of Christ is the best decision you will ever make in your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the institution of marriage. We give you thanks because you have given us this gift. You've given this gift to the world, believers and unbelievers. It's your common verse to us on how to create a family, how to instruct a family, how to procreate and make the world what it is. Thank you, because in your intention, in your plan, you made marriage to be forever. 
I pray for all marriages here represented, from the leaders to the parents to the people marriages here. I pray that we can honor you, Lord. We can honor you with our actions, that we can love our spouses more than ourselves, that we can follow your example that you call us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I pray, God, that you can give that urgency to all the, those that are here, that they can have that in their minds to honor you with their bodies and purity. Father, that they can want to love you and follow your commandments because you said it. And it's an honor to follow your commandments, and it's not burdensome to follow your commandments because we love you, God. Thank you for tonight. I pray that in the small groups, Lord, that and through the teaching and the teaching of the continuing teaching of your word, that you can continue to change the hearts and lives of the youth today. We pray this in your holy and precious name.